Thank you for downloading and listening to the Briam Bible Church Sunday Morning Podcast. Briam Bible Church is located in Shoreline, Washington, morning worship at 11, and many more events throughout the week. For more information, please visit our website at www.bereanshoreline.org. <clears throat> Let's start with a word of prayer. Now we're down to the serious part, uh, and we'll move from here. Lord, uh, as my dad so often prayed, uh, please hide your servant in your cross this morning. Uh, may the words that we have to look at, to share, to ponder, uh, be your words. May the motivation of our hearts be to hear what you have to say to us. Uh, and Lord, may I simply be uh, the messenger. And as you promise, your word does not go out in vain, but always returns uh, to you with fruit. And we pray that would be the case this morning as well. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, you might, uh, I have been called, at least in the past, a typical male, especially in the fact that I was afraid to commit. Or at least that's what people thought because it took me until age 35 to get married. I think at some point, my lovely wife Kimberly probably thought I had some fear of commitment as well. She found out too late that there were a host of other reasons that I was still single at age 35. (laughs) Really had nothing to do with my fear of commitment, but a host of others were unwilling to commit to me because of a few other habits that I have. But it appears, or appeared, that I had a fear of commitment, but, and if that were true, I would have had very good company because there's plenty of examples from the scriptures of men who had a great fear of commitment. And I'm not just talking about marriage or relationships at this point, but rather even fear of committing to something that God asked them to do. That seems a little bit unusual, but I'm sure you can think of many of the examples. Uh, Peter, for example. Sure, Peter's the first one out of the boat. He's quick with a sword. But when the sun came up on the day after Jesus Christ was arrested... Peter had been unable to so much as commit that he even knew his Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Jonah. Jonah is one of the great stories in the Bible. God says, Jonah, go to Nineveh, and Jonah goes, um, you know, the other direction. Uh, Doesn't really want to do what God has for him, and one of the reasons it's a great story in the scriptures, because I suppose God could have done any number of things. He could have, you know, you know, blown the, the, uh, the boat gently back toward where uh, Jonah was supposed to be going, but he comes up with, with the fish, which, you know, very original uh, and creative, and somewhere God is thinking, well, yeah, I'm God. Uh, most of what I do is pretty good. Um, but, you know, Jonah eventually gets where he's supposed to be going. <clears throat> Gideon, you know, what can you say about Gideon? It took him a number of times before he could actually feel some level of confidence of what God wanted him to do and he hemmed and hawed and took a number of things to overcome his reluctance to commit and as it turns out we get a really great figure of speech out of that as well, this whole lane of fleece before God. Uh, and then Moses, Moses might be the worst of all. Uh, you no doubt recall that God reveals himself to Moses miraculously in a way that would have impressed any of us. Uh, he appears to Moses in a burning bush. Would you like to have been the first person and encountered Moses after God revealed himself to him in a burning bush. I'm sure he had to stun the parents, wandering around in a bit of a daze, and they said, Moses, what happened? I, I just met with God. God, where was he? Well, he was in a burning bush. 
okay. And uh, next you're going to tell us your staff turned into a serpent, I bet. So Moses has this great story. He has this miraculous revelation from God. He gets superpowers from God. Uh, you'll recall God gave him three different miracles to do. He had the, uh, he had the serpent, the staff that turned into a serpent. He had the, the leprous hand that he could put in his cloak and pull it out and it'd go leprous and not leprous, and then he could turn water to blood, none of which is terribly useful today but was probably very impressive uh, to the people that he was speaking to then. But even then... He was unwilling to go. Uh, look at Exodus chapter 3 is where we'll start this morning. In Exodus chapter 3, let's start at verse 7. And we won't take the time to read this whole passage, but we'll try and pick out the good stuff so you get what's going on. This is a familiar passage to most of you. In verse 7, he's just heard from God within the burning bush. And the Lord said, in verse 7, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Jump down to verse 10. So now go, I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, and he's, he's working it here. He's thinking through different things that might go wrong. The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am This is what you are to say to the Israelites, that I am has sent me to you. So here God gives Moses. For the first time in Scripture that you see this term, this name, he gives Moses his personal name. This this I am is the word that uh, is Yahweh, or uh, transliterated Jehovah uh, in some of your texts. And God has not revealed himself that way before, so he... He really steps out for Moses here, and he gives him his personal name, and he says, tell them that I am has sent you. So he gives him his personal, God gives him this personal name. He appears to him miraculously. He gives him uh, all these superpowers, if you will, and he says, I'm going to go with you, and with my strength, you're going to whoop the Egyptians. And what's Moses' response? Chapter 4, verse 13, Moses said, oh, Lord, please send someone else to do it. Now, if you read on in the passage, uh, Moses, God actually gets angry with Moses at this point, but he doesn't give up on Moses. Despite Moses' fear, his unwillingness to commit, he has to go get Moses' big brother. He says, I'll get your big brother. He'll take you by the hand. You guys can go together. And that's eventually what happens. But Moses goes, and the rest is history, so to speak. He becomes one of the greatest prophets, men of God in all of Scripture. In fact, there's probably... There's perhaps no one, even the disciples, when you look at how intimate a relationship Moses had with God, there may be no one else like Moses, and yet at the outset, he was completely unwilling to commit. Uh, And you know, it's easy for us to look back on these Old Testament greats and to judge and to say, you know, I would have gone. Uh, But we're human like they were. We are not quick to do what God asks us to do either. And it's, and it's hard when we're looking at these passages to, to put ourselves in their shoes and to, and to think, 
geez, I wonder if I wonder if I would do it most of it. But hold, but come back to that because we'll get to there by the end of the into the message here this morning. But fast forward in your Bibles and in time about 1,400 years or so, depending on whose scholarly work you're reading, to the book of John. So we're going to go from Moses all the way to John and John chapter 8. Now in John chapter 8, God once again appears miraculously, this time in physical form, as a man. And as you might imagine, this causes a bit of a stir. Uh, here's God on earth, uh, and he's he's doing stuff. Um, now, I was in Jerusalem a number of years ago, so I've seen the narrow streets of Jerusalem, uh, and many of them are where they were even in Christ's time. Uh, I was also on, or perhaps I should say near, 4th Avenue for the Seahawks victory parade last year. Um, I'm, there, there's not as many people in the whole city of Jerusalem as there were at the Seahawks victory parade, but I sort of imagine that in the, the narrow streets of Jerusalem, that the sometimes 10,000 people that were following Jesus Christ uh, along, that if they had been lined up along the Villa Della Rosa in Jerusalem, that it would have looked something like the Seahawk parade. Suffice it to say, this is a big deal. This guy, Jesus, uh, who claims to be God, has this enormous following, and everywhere he goes, exciting things are happening. And the only difference, of course, is that there were no politicians in the parade for uh, uh, for Jesus down the Via Della Rosa, because uh, you know, if you, those of you at the Seahawk Parade, it was it was a great time of celebration. But it was a little odd to have you know the mayor and the governor like, and, and you go, oh, that's right, the governor scored a touchdown in the second quarter. Uh, it, it, Jesus didn't do that because he really didn't get along well with the politicians. In fact, that's one of the things that people loved about him is that he would get in the Pharisees' face periodically, and the common folks just thought that was great. Not only that, but he did miracles. Uh, he was a teacher, and he was a great teacher. It helps when you're a teacher that you're always right. Uh, so, I mean, he was authoritative, but, you know, I'm sure you wonder, okay, we're hearing from a lawyer this morning, I'm really going to have to go home and search the scriptures and make sure this was true. When Jesus taught, they didn't have to do that. It's like, here's God, and he's expounding on the Bible. Does it get much better than that? So he sounded like he knew what he was talking about when he taught. So they really enjoyed his teaching. Uh, and, and then on top of that, there's the miracles, and I'm just listing a few. You know, he turned the water to wine. Very popular miracle, as it turned out. Uh, he would heal the sick and the lame. Uh, he cast out demons, fed 5,000 people, which, of course, was probably more like 10,000 because the 5,000 counts just the men alone. If you add one woman or one child for every man that's there, you get to some of you math majors are already there at 10,000. Uh, he walked on the water, and if that's not enough, he could read minds. Think about that one for just a moment. Uh, for three years of his earthly ministry... Jesus likely knew everything that those 12 disciples were thinking at all times. Now, I mentioned this in Sunday school. These guys were not always the sharpest tools in the drawer, okay? Uh, some of the things that they, you know, Jesus would say, you know, watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees. And they'd say, hey, do we have enough bread? I wonder if it has to do with fishing. So if it was about fishing or bread, they sometimes, they didn't even get it then. Uh, so... There may be no greater proof that Jesus was God that he could read their minds and he stayed with these 12 guys for three years because I'm sure at some point he wanted to put like a lead helmet over Thomas's head because he's trying to shut out the brainwaves because it was probably so heinous, the things that were, he was, could just overhear in his, in his mind. So I hope because as God, he could occasionally sort of turn them off, but I, I, my sense is he probably couldn't. This is quite 
I don't want to say the show, but, but that's really what it was to some of the people that are following Jesus Christ. You've got these thousands of people following along. He's doing miracles. Uh, and there's food. It's always good. So he's got the 12 disciples. He has many, many others who are following him. Like I said, sometimes up to 10,000. He's this amazing teacher, puts on a great show with miracles and food. But now keep in mind that Christ said on a number of occasions that he did not come to bring peace, but a sword. His message was not one that was always easy to hear. It was often highly controversial. And like I said, the political leaders didn't like him either. You just knew at some point he was going to call out these people who casually followed him, who were there for the miracles and the food, and he was going to say, you know, there's, there's going to have to be something more at some point. Following me is going to require something more than what you've been willing to do. And so as we get to John 8, he's going to challenge all these people that are following him. In fact, in John 6, when you go back to his talking about I'm the bread of life and that whole message, and he gets into sort of this notion of communion, this uh, you know, partaking of his body and his blood, he loses a lot of disciples there because that Jesus is just too weird. I mean, it was sounding cannibalistic, and so they, he loses a lot of them there. But when we get to John 8, there's still a number of them that are following him. And he challenges them with this very simple idea that erupts into a heated exchange to where they actually want to kill him. And what was the simple idea? It was this. If you truly are my followers, you will hold to my teachings and you will obey what I say. Because what I say is truth because I got it from God himself. You know, again, a little hard to put ourselves in their shoes just the same way as it was to put ourselves in the sandals of Moses. Uh, how do you think you would react? These people that have been following him for some months, I'm sure saying, okay, Jesus, you're a good teacher, we get that. But, you know, the God thing, I'm not sure I'm going with you there. But look at what he says here. Let's turn to the passage, John chapter 8. You know, these guys are the blessed people of Israel. They have this inheritance handed down to them. They're the ones through whom uh, the Messiah is going to come, even though they don't recognize him when he's right in front of them. But they, they understand that they're this blessed people of God. And so it, it makes this very difficult for them to swallow. John chapter 8, let's go to verse 31. To the Jews who had believed him, and that's critical. These are people that were following and that whether or not they put their faith in him or not, it's not clear, but they're listening to him and they're believing what he has to say and they've been following him around for months, maybe years at this point. Jesus says, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we're Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves to anyone. How can you say that we should be set free? Uh, skip down to verse 39. If you were Abraham's children, said Jesus, then you would do the things Abraham did. As it is, you are determined to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. You're doing the things your own father does. Uh, down to verse 42. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and am now here. I have not come on my own, but he sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. Skip down to the last half of 46. If I'm telling you the truth, why don't you believe me? He who belongs to God hears what God says. The reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. So he's starting to, you can tell he's starting to irritate him just a little bit here. The Jews answered him, aren't we right in saying that you're a Samaritan and demon-possessed? Okay, the dialogue's just gone south. Uh, he's pushed him just enough, and now they're just going to insult him. So, uh, 
but it gets better. I'm not demon, I'm not possessed by a demon, said Jesus, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. I'm not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it and he is the judge. I tell you the truth, if a man keeps my word, he will never see death. At this, the Jews exclaimed, now we know that you are demon possessed. Abraham died and so did the prophets. Yet you say, if a man keeps your word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? Let that one settle in for just a second. Now, I'm a simple man. Those of you who know me know that to be true. Still like to wear jeans. All of them are under 30 bucks. Drive an old Jeep, more than 200,000 miles on it. 20-some years old. I drink Coke, not Pepsi. I drink whole milk straight from the cow the way the good Lord intended. And I don't eat kale because I don't know what it is. <laughs> but as simple as I may be, I've figured out a few things in life. My wife asked me, do I look fat in this dress? I would never say, that dress? If... <laughs> Actually, my, ne- my wife has never looked fat in anything, and so it really doesn't uh, matter what she said. But I wouldn't say that. Uh, if I'm playing golf and there is a grizzly bear on the next green, I would go to the next hole, perhaps the next hole after that. Brown bear, okay. Grizzly bear, no. You know, they sometimes think you're teasing them in the cart. So you go, to, you go two holes up. Uh, if Judge Gonzalez were to say to me, Mr. Kemper, if I hear one more word out of your mouth, I will hold you in contempt. I have yet to say to him, oh, yeah, go ahead and try. Okay? I haven't done that yet. I've learned some of these things in life, and I'm quite sure that if I were standing in front of Almighty God and he told me what to do, that I would probably not say to him, who do you think you are? But that's what the Jews said to Jesus Christ. Christ continues, verse 54. Jesus replied, if I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My Father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I'd be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. Now the Jews are completely off the rails. You are not yet 50 years old, the Jews said to him, and you've seen Abraham? I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. At this they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away through the temple grounds. So now Jesus has done it. He's invoked the name. He's gone back to this passage that we started with in Exodus chapter 3. He's declared to the Jews that I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am the one who appeared to Moses in the burning bush. I am the God and the creator of the universe. That God and the person that you are seeing right now are one and the same. What does that mean? Well, the Jews knew what it meant. Because they immediately picked up stones to stone him. They understood that he was calling himself Almighty God. And there was no debate in their minds. Uh, And in fact, that's the appropriate reaction if you don't believe Jesus is God, is that the punishment for blasphemy was death. And they were going to carry it out right there on the spot. Jesus had clearly claimed, uh, 
like I said, unambiguous to them uh, exactly who he was. And this posed a problem for them in their culture because he just committed a crime. They can't just let this go. If he's not God, they now have to execute him. Now, you and I have a similar problem. Jesus still claims to be God. After this account in John 8, he goes to the cross and he dies following that claim that he was God. And then also in Jerusalem, there's an empty tomb that demonstrates he later rose again from the, from the dead because he claimed to be God. And from that day forward, world history has never been the same. It's been forever affected. And generation after generation, each generation has to ask itself the same question, was Jesus who he said? The problem is this. If Jesus is who he said he was, the answer to what you do with that has eternal consequences. And interestingly, there are people today who are just like that group of Jews in John chapter 8, who like the teachings, who want to follow along, who want to be part of this crowd of people who talk about Jesus because he had wonderful things to say. But I don't think we have that option. Nathan, could you put the slide up? I have this wonderful PowerPoint presentation today, and that's the whole presentation right there. And it looks like I should have used bold. This is a quote from C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis, a man uh, who most of you are familiar with his writings, but himself struggled with this notion of who Christ was and so conducted his own investigation, ultimately concluded that he was who he claimed to be. And he wrote this in his book, Mere Christianity. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or he would be the devil of hell. You must take your choice. Either this was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. Thanks. You can go back to lights. Uh, if you've never made the decision of what to do with Jesus Christ, uh, you really can't just follow the crowd. That, that's, not, that's not one of the options that you have. If, if, if you're here with this group, or if you're thinking he's a great teacher, and you think, well, this is interesting stuff, and these people are fun, you're off base. Because either it's this sick group of individuals, or we're following someone who claimed to be God and who makes demands of us because of the fact that he claims to be God. You have to decide which is true. And either way, it's time for you to choose. You can't just sit and wait to see what happens. Well, you can but there's always consequences for that. You know, this week was 9-11, the memorial of it, 13 years since it happened, and those of us who were getting up that bright sunny morning like it was this week as well, we'll never forget that day. We turned on the TV and didn't go to work, and didn't go to work for days after that, and it changed us. Uh, I also just finished uh, Boys in the Boat, great book, about the University of Washington crew team that won uh, 
the eight-man crew race in 1936 at the Olympics. Of course, in 36, Hitler was coming to power, so there's this, there's this building ominous tone throughout the whole book as they're getting ready to go to the Olympics, and everyone's sort of watching to see what Hitler's going to do. Uh, and I couldn't help but think of that again as the 9-11 memorial passed, that we had all this information, and we were sort of waiting to see what was going to happen. And here's the truth. You can always sit and wait and see what's going to happen, but by not deciding, you really have decided. And the time and tide of history will bring things to pass whether you're ready for it or not. So scripture tells us that now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. You don't know what tomorrow holds, whether it's an airplane flying into a tower, tree falling on Highway 2 like it did winter before last, and you're just driving over the pass, boom tree you never saw drops on your car and that's the way life ends. We don't know. You can't afford to wait. It's a decision you have to make. Now I know most of you here, I really do, uh, I don't know for sure, but my thought is that most of you, uh, from what I know of you, have made a decision for Jesus Christ long ago. You believe that Jesus is God's son and you've placed your faith in him, uh, like I have. But you know, he didn't really leave us the option either of just placing our faith in him and then going along with this wonderful fine of looking group of folks. And that, that really wasn't the option he gave us either. Uh, remember this whole discussion in chapter eight of John takes place when Christ confronts them with this simple truth, that he is the truth from God and we have to follow him. And you know, one of the songs we sang this morning is, you know, give my life to follow all that I believe in, I surrender. And that's what God asks. If you truly believe Jesus is God, he says you need to do what I say. He's not just God, he's Lord. Is he Lord of your life this morning is my question. Does your life on a daily, weekly basis reflect his lordship? Now, as I prepared for this this week, I had to ask myself, and I would hope you ask yourself, uh, you know, maybe make a checklist, but, you know, here's the things I came up with. In, in coming face-to-face again with the scripture that says Jesus Christ doesn't want to be somewhere in the middle. You know, if you're lukewarm, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. Uh, but rather, you know, you're either in his camp and he's your Lord, or you're not in the camp at all. There's no, I'm in the camp, but I'm just trying to escape the flames. Not an option he left us. The checklist I, you know, I had to ask myself, is, is Jesus Christ Lord of my mouth? Do the things that come out of my mouth reflect the fact that I claim to be one who believes in Jesus Christ as my Lord? Is he Lord of my lifestyle? Do the priorities that I have as I go about my daily activities reflect that I am a follower of Jesus Christ? Or am I like the rest of the world who goes through the week hoping to get to the part at the end where there's alcohol and sex? I mean, it, I wish I was just talking to teenagers, but I know I have too many other people I know in life that that's the goal. It's beer and sex, and if I can just get a job, I can pay for both. And uh, there's really no greater, deeper meaning to life than that. Do your priorities reflect that Jesus Christ is Lord of your life? How about, Lord, of your money? Is it all about you? Does it all get spent on you, nice things for your family? Those are good. He tells us to take care of our own. 
but does the way that I handle my finances reflect that Jesus Christ is Lord of those finances? And finally, what about my time? If I get to the end of the week and I have to, and I'm thinking so hard, when did I, what? Unfortunately, I, I can usually remember when it was that I spent time in God's word this week, when it was that I was praying. Uh, so that's a little more constant, so. But I find myself having to look back through the week way too many times thinking, when was it that I spent time with my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? And if the answer is a big goose egg, then I suggest that perhaps God is not Lord of your time, or perhaps none of the other things either if you're not spending any time with him. That's the conclusion I come to looking at my life. He wants not just to be Savior, but to be Lord. Will you let him? Will you commit to that? Are you afraid of what's going to happen if you do? Will you do what he says, or will you be like the Jews in John 8, who, if not literally, you figuratively say to him, who do you think that you are? I hope that's not the case. It's great that you could join us here today. Good to see all your smiling faces. You can tell school's back. <laughs> the pews are full again, and it's just great to have you all here. We started out this morning talking about Peter, Jonah, Gideon, and Moses, all of whom were afraid to commit. But each, when they did commit, did mighty things for God. God doesn't ask us to do anything that he doesn't also promise to us the strength to do it. So my encouragement to you is to step out in faith this week. Commit to God's call, and he'll give you the strength to be committed to him. You're dismissed.